So this is uh, the Theology Matters podcast. I'm the host, Josh Malden. I'm here today with Celia Dean Drummond, who is a professor at the University of Oxford. And uh, originally when you were at CTI, Celia, in 2012-2013, you were a professor of theology at the University of Notre Dame. Maybe tell the listeners uh, what you're working on in Oxford now. Uh, yes, thank you very much for this opportunity. Um, I'm now a, a director of a new research institute called the Laudato C. Research Institute and Laudato Si is the encyclical that Pope Francis produced in 2015 and it's had more impact around the world than any other encyclical before or since. So it's, uh, it integrates questions about ecology, science and poverty in one sort of statement that's intended to be a wake-up call, if you like, to some of the crises that we're, we're seeing in our world today. And he, he deals with climate change, biodiversity loss, um, poverty, vulnerability, and so on, but weaves it into a theological narrative around Francis of Assisi's Laudato Si, which is, um, well, the summary statement of Laudato Si means praise be. So it's a very upbeat kind of message, but at the same time, he points his finger um, in a very deliberative kind of way to, to where he thinks there needs to be change. Yeah, we're going to talk in a bit about your own reflections on the crisis of the pandemic and including how it might relate to anthropogenic climate change, uh, you know, human-caused climate change, and which is discussed in Laudato Si. I mean, that, that encyclical came out, was it about four years ago? But are you seeing teachings from it that are relevant now during the pandemic? Absolutely. It's never been more relevant now than, than, than then. In a sense, its message is exceptionally relevant, I would say. And what I thought I would do um, in answer to that is, is say something about what I think, if you like, are the four key lessons coming out of Laudato Si, which are relevant to, to COVID-19. The first one that he points out right at the beginning of the encyclical, and of course this applies to climate change as well, is that we're dealing with a broken relationship between God, creation and one another. You know, this applies, as I said, even more now in the in the COVID situation, because if you go back to the origins of COVID, it was about a broken relationship with us and other animals. The the, the uh, wet markets where COVID is thought to have originated um, was a result of pangolins being traded, which are endangered species. Um, and so, again, these are sort of markets where many of the products coming out of those um, trading arrangements are designed to produce kind of drugs such as um, aphrodisiacs and other things. So that's, you know, one issue. And so there's a kind of lurking, if you like, disruption or disjunction or broken relationship going on there. In addition to that, some rhino um, endangered species like the rhino are even more endangered now in a COVID world because there are no tourists who, when they're there, tend to, if you like, damp down um, poaching and other illegal activities so it's it's a very interconnected sense that you know we are living in this broken um, relationship with God creation and each other and one of them again the messages of Laudato Si is that we are entangled with one another and with other species and again that's very very real in COVID-19 uh, that entanglement has now sort of come to writ large as it were so now the, the the second area which is stressed time and time again in Laudato Si is that the most vulnerable and the most marginalized are the most affected this of course applies to climate change but it also applies to COVID-19 so 
we're just kind of multiplying up the levels of vulnerability and injustice that's going on. One of the indigenous peoples in particular have been in very, very hard hit by COVID-19, but they're also um, very hard hit by climate change. So it's like a, a double a double strike um, and what we're seeing now as well is that governments and other organizations are not taking that sufficiently seriously so Brazil hasn't really supplied any um, ventilators or anything like that to those communities they don't have proper fresh water to have the basic uh, hygiene tools to wash their hands so it's exacerbated um, existing injustices in the world uh, which again was pointed out in Laudato Si. The third area that Pope Francis talks about in Lada to see is that science and technology aren't enough to solve the problems of climate change. And while he respects the science and gives science all due credit, just relying on science in a single sort of lens is not really sufficient. We have to think about the wider social, ethical and political issues. And again, the, the rhetoric, rhetoric in the UK, at least, is by the politicians is we rely on science and science will give us the light. Well, actually, Pope Francis says in the encyclical, if you give too much epistemic weight to science, you're not actually going to solve these deep rooted problems and issues. And that seems to be, again, what has happened here. So science is a gift, but it doesn't have the same ontological basis as theology or religion, which gives things a different kind of angle through which to think through the, some of the complex problems that we're in. And then finally, the voices of the most marginalised have been suppressed. So what Pope Francis says again, time and time again, is that we should hear the cry of the earth, but also the cry of the poor, that we shouldn't succumb to indifference when those who are the most vulnerable in the world are suffering. And again, we see this happening again. The, there's an indifference about suffering and course uh, we've seen in the latest riots and with um, race riots and so on again the, the most marginalized are not being listened to and they are also the ones that are most affected the BAME communities for example have the highest COVID rates and much of this is to do with what I would call structural sin so he points out this these structural issues of sin that we need to to acknowledge but also at the same time his message is full of hope and also promise as well. He's saying it's not, we shouldn't give up in the face of these huge challenges. We have a message of hope in the Christian gospel that we need to be aware of and also promote. So he doesn't end up with a negative message. He ends up with saying that it's time to act. Um, so we see, we judge and we act. And that's the kind of liberation theology framework for thinking through these issues. And it's also a similar um, framework that's going to be appropriate for thinking about COVID-19 as well. Absolutely. A few of the things you touched on there relate to broader research strands in your work going, you know, at least back to several years, including uh, 2012-13 when you were at CTI in a program on religion and human evolution. Maybe talk a bit about that research you've done over the years and more broadly about how you see the relationship between theology and not only the sciences in general, but theology and evolution. Yes, and I, I have to say that that year in Princeton at CTI was was immensely significant for me in terms of opening my eyes up to engagement with with scientists on a quite close uh, close contact basis. So, and it 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 allowed new kinds of thinking and a deeper engagement with theological 
um, aspects that I wouldn't have had otherwise. So I remain immensely grateful to CTI for giving me that opportunity and all the others, of course, who were part of that team that year and many of whom we've kept in, in contact with. Um, and since that time, I've carried on working with Augustin Fuentes on a project on human distinctiveness. And, you know, we've published a number of uh, shared papers together. The most recent is one called Theology and Evolutionary Anthropology, Dialogues in Wisdom, Humility and Grace. And that came out of a symposium that we held in South Africa with some evolutionary anthropologists, many of whom at that symposium had never met uh, theologians before. So, and they were fairly suspicious. And, and the first thing I said to them when we started the conversation was, I'm not a creationist. Um, and they immediately gave a sigh of relief. And then after <laughs> another day or so, uh, many of them said, well, this is really interesting. It's really challenging our ways of thinking about early human evolution. And actually, we need to know more. So, and that's how the the book project and the in the discussion went so it, it wasn't just a conversation it was actually trying to create new kinds of research that would be useful for them and but also useful for us as, as theologians who were part of that discussion since then i have one of the collaborators in that project called penny spikins is a an evolutionary archaeologist at the university of york and i've started a small project with her at the moment on the evolution of gratitude and again she's someone who is very interested in the early moral emotions. And I've produced a, a book um, this just published last year called Theological Ethics Through a Multi-Species Lens. And that includes quite a close engagement with our early, early human moral evolution. And the interesting thing about this project on gratitude, just as the, it's in similar way to the project on wisdom with Augustin Fuentes, is that this kind of thinking is both theological but it hasn't really been thought about that well in terms of um, early human evolution or evolution as such so it's a way of bringing in theological aspects of a discussion into an evolutionary narrative and if you like challenging parts of that narrative but also showing how theology has a creative role to play in in spinning off and sparking new insights into the sciences and that's what we're really trying to do. We want, we want the theology to spark off new science, but also the science to spark off new theology. So we're sort of, it's a, a mutually um, beneficial process. It's not just the theology adapting to the science. It's much more rich than that. It's, it's science actually being created in a different kind of way. And that I think is, is then sort of feeds off from that into new public conversations. So gratitude, for example, is relevant not just for thinking theoretically about our early human origins, but it also then creates a different kind of narrative of who we are as, as agents, as human agents. We're not just in a competitive relationship with each other, sort of nature tooth and claw, which is the standard evolutionary model, but we're much more deeply cooperative and gratitude is something that's distinctive and unique to human species. So, and without gratitude, we're not going to be able to solve some of the problems that we have around COVID-19, environmental issues and the issues of poverty. We have to try and rethink the way we are in the world. And that's, again, one of the messages of Ladar to see is the importance of gratitude. So it kind of connects in with Ladar to see, but it's, if you like, a, a part of 
that story that's underdeveloped in it. And that's what we're trying to do as a research institute. We want our work to be um, inspired by Loud Odyssey, but it's not just um, education, public education. It's actually saying, well, what are the threads in there which could do with a little bit more depth and, and, and analysis? And so this is why we have this gratitude project um, uh, uh, in place at the moment. So it's, a, it's really interesting. It's, um, it's a fascinating story thinking about how it was that something like gratitude came to be at all, rather than out of nowhere, as it were. Um, but it's also not out of nowhere. You can actually see that there, are, there were structures in place that meant that um, early human communities started to have long distance uh, communication with other groups in a way that was very unusual for other species. In fact, they didn't do that at all. And so gradually there were gifts, ex gifts exchanged and so on, and that came a little bit later. But the sense of, of imagining what th those early communities would have been like and understanding their social worlds helps us to, if you like, map what their mental world was like as well. Now, now you could come back to me and say, well, this is all very well, but how do you know what their mental world was like? All you have is bones and stones. Well, you don't, but you can put pieces of the puzzle together and try and sort of recreate what that world is in the light of what you know about what they did. So it's, it is speculative to a degree, but then much evolutionary anthropology is speculative. And I think that's, again, why having conversations with theologians and philosophers is something that is possible in, world, in scientific worlds like this, which are both speculative but also rely on... on um, data collection at the same time. So you come up with, if you like, your best guess at what might have happened based on the evidence. Um, but theology can be part of that creation of what that best guess might look like. Absolutely. Uh, you kindly sent me an, an article that you wrote uh, on a blog, Thinking Faith. The title of your article is Laudato Si and COVID-19, Can Praises Still Be Sung in a Strange Land? What, what led you to want to write this article? I actually wrote a draft of this very soon after we went into lockdown. Mm -hmm. And at that stage, I thought that the, the tablet might be interested in publishing it. And they were very interested, but they had other things on their agenda. And in a sense, what happened was I wanted to, to say something about Laudato Si that was celebrating its fifth anniversary while being in this unusual situation, because I knew all our plans had been completely turned upside down and that many people were feeling disorientated. And I, so I wanted to, to say, well, what theological commentary could we have in this situation now? And in the end, as you see, it was published in, in early April, although I first drafted this in, in March, so very soon after lockdown. And I think what I wanted to do was to say some of the messages um, of Laudato Si were still extremely relevant. The idea of entanglement, for example, is extremely relevant to this. So I wanted to trace back on that. I also wanted to, I felt frustrated with some of the reports at the time were saying that, well, maybe there's a positive coming out of COVID-19 because people aren't flying and therefore the air is cleaning up. I thought that was quite simplistic because climate change is, is a very complex process. So in, a, uh, in as much as you're stopping flying, the impact then on those countries that aren't receiving travellers and so on is leading to it, you know, the possibility of immense suffering. So 
and that was being missed out of the picture at the time. So we can't just say, oh, well, this is a, a universal positive, while at the same time saying, well, maybe this will bring an opportunity for us to reconnect with the natural world in a way it hasn't before. So I think people are ready for the new and ready for change. What I was trying to say is that this is what LAD RTC anticipated. It anticipated the need for mass change. It also anticipated the need for new thinking. And so now's the time to really not just ignore that, but to see how the two are integrated. I also uh, wanted to touch on issues of justice that again are in Loud R2C and in COVID-19. Beyond that, I wanted to point back to my own interest in the idea of a, of a shared humanity, that we are human agents together, we've evolved together, we cooperate together. And so the reason it's so difficult to remain socially distant is that we are evolved to be deep collaborators with one another, working face-to-face -face in, in collaboration. So a situation where we have to withdraw from one another in order to love one another seems very, very weird. In a sense, that sense of weirdness is part of our evolutionary makeup. It's a deep sense of we are human agents because we are hyper and hyper cooperative. And that's something I learned from the evolutionary anthropologists. It's one of our unique characteristics. But I also know one of our unique characteristics is the capacity for gratitude, which again brings in the gratitude project I just mentioned. And that's why I think we need to replace the anxiety we feel as a result of that disruption to our social lives with this alternative voice of praise and gratitude, which will help damp down that anxiety, which leads to all kinds of um, inappropriate reactions um, in, this, in this crisis by politicians and others. So I think much of the trouble that we see, the sin, if you will, arising in the COVID-19 situation comes out of a sense of anxiety. I was going to say that that's something that Kierkegaard believed as well. I don't think uh, anxiety is the root of all sin, but I think it's a very important element in triggering certain things. So because when people are anxious and afraid, they react in irrational ways and often don't even realize um, what, that what they're doing is it's not going to lead to the best and most prudent course of action. Uh, yeah given that evolutionary background of human cooperativity do you think the lockdown social distancing has a kind of natural time limit I mean is it sustainable for a very long time uh, we're kind of starting to come out of it maybe for good or for ill, at least in this country. But do you think there's a, a limit as to how long uh, people can sustain it? I think people are trying to adapt as best they can and finding other ways to connect through quite imaginative uses of technology in a way that perhaps no one really anticipated. Uh, and so that's one sense positive. But I think long term, it would be almost impossible to sustain a life like that. It wouldn't be, feel like a, a normal kind of life to live. Although, of course, if people were inculcated with it from the very beginning, and that, this is what we're seeing with young people now, you know, I, I have two teenagers, they seem to be far better able to adapt to this COVID-19 situation than those of us who haven't been so savvy in the technologies over the years. But at the same time, there's something missing by doing that. And I don't think we're, you know, having our, and that's where we can learn from Indigenous communities that that haven't really had the had access to to so many new technologies like that that they are very, a very very close and, and interwoven community and i think that pope francis was warning about the dangers of replacing social relationships with 
technological tools, you know, like FaceTime or other things, as if it was going to be sufficient. And in a way, we've learned that actually he's right, that it's not doesn't feel sufficient to us, even though it's better than nothing. So it's it's a kind of dissatisfying feeling of ambiguity in using these techniques all the time. And certainly an anthropologist I know called Susan Bloom has written an article on why it is so exhausting trying to teach through Zoom because you don't have the face-to-face reactions and interactions and subtle cues that you get when you're together face-to-face. And that's what we rely on when we're teaching often to make, uh, to give a class a kind of buzz. So if you just relied on online means and nothing else, it would be better than nothing, but it certainly wouldn't be fully satisfying. Maybe as a last question, the penultimate paragraph of your article that I mentioned discusses the theological question in some sense regarding uh, COVID-19 and the coronavirus. And to quote, you write, before we knew about evolution, many theologians had trouble squaring belief in God with those creatures that seem to us to be immoral or positively evil. But there is nothing explicitly evil about COVID-19. It is doing what it is made to do, multiply in its hosts, keeping many alive to pass it on to new hosts. It doesn't intend to kill. We use anthropomorphic language of battle and starvation in our relationship with the virus as it helps us to deal with its dark and negative consequences on our lives. Maybe speak a bit to that, how you think about this distinctly in a theological framework. Yes, I mean, I'm not trying to to say by that that diseases of one sort or another are our positive thing on our for our humanity they're clearly not but i think to to try and give covid-19 moral agency is a mistake because it avoids facing up to the very real issues that come out of our own human decision making the decision for example to allow those wet markets to exist the decision whether to lock down or not. I mean, some countries like Korea have had virtually no deaths at all. And so is this virus evil or is it our, the way we act in response to it evil? I would say that it's the second. Um, and so that, but often we, are, we want to blame something else for our own incompetence. So we use the virus as a scapegoat for our own incompetency. I mean, we have the intelligence and we have the insight to know how it passes from one person to the next. It's not like it's some sort of dark force or mysterious force arising out of the ether in the way that maybe before we had any understanding of microbiology. It's also actually relatively non-virulent compared to many parasites. Something like SARS, for example, is far more virulent. It kills far more people and also attacked um, the younger population rather than the older population. In the UK where I live, most of the deaths have been in care homes because uh, people were sent back from hospitals to care homes without being tested. So it spread uh, very, very quickly because people in care homes were vulnerable and in an age bracket where the infection rate was, was likely to be um, far higher and the death rate. And so I'm, I'm, I think that the, our tendency to blame something, to ha- create a scapegoat, is being expressed by this language of battle and, and attack. And I also think we need to see it as part of God's creation. So it's not some, but it's also arisen as a result of transfer between one species and the next. So in a sense, we are also responsible for it arising in the first place by the way we've behaved, because it's jumped across the species boundary. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't other zoontic uh, diseases as well that have happened without our intervention. 
but we may need to be aware that we have been responsible in allowing that kind of thing to happen. So if we really want to tackle COVID-19 and other diseases like it, we need to get to the root of where it's arisen and why it's arisen and tackle that because we are, as it, we are, we have been responsible for allowing those kinds of things to, to take place. So I think that, as I said, the, the interesting thing about this and something I didn't put in this article very clearly is that just as in climate change, there is a sort of blurring between natural evil and moral evil. So in COVID-19, there's a blurring between what we perceive as natural evil and moral evil, except that in this case, the way that the natural evil is expressed is through our particular actions and reactions, just as it is in climate change. So, so when a hurricanes start sweeping through in a far greater frequency than they would otherwise because of anthropogenic climate change, we are then indirectly responsible, just as we are indirectly responsible when we haven't followed social distancing rules and we don't think there's anything wrong necessarily in not doing that. But of course, very small actions of large numbers of people has devastating consequences on others, especially the most vulnerable. So it's like we're not facing up to our uh, where we need to feel responsible. Uh, because it doesn't feel to us as if there's anything particularly wrong in doing something. And that's very, very analogous to climate change. We think that by creating a very small carbon footprint, it's not going to make much difference. And we think, well, let's meet uh, my friend down the road. It's not going to make much difference. It's a similar sort of thing that with enough people doing that, um, it has, say, devastating com consequences on the most vulnerable. And, I, and as I said, I, I don't think God is absent from such processes. I don't think it's a punishment for sin either that the COVID-19 has taken off um, the way some people are arguing. I think God's providence is still at work. And even within the disaster that we see unfolding, there can be acts of great love and goodness and compassion displayed, as we've seen, you know, throughout the, you know, many people in the medical profession have, have done exactly that, that they have risen to the, the challenge and not allowed themselves to, to sink down into, into not responding appropriately towards those who are suffering. It raises again the old chestnut of the problem of evil in the world, but it's not something that we should say, well, it's, it's definitely COVID is the evil one and we are the, the battlers against it. We have to take our responsibilities seriously and see both its origin and its spread in terms of our own involvement in that. That's a very profound point, I think, to close on, Celia Dean Drummond. It's been great talking to you. I think this pandemic helps us see our inter interdependence with the rest of the planet. And indeed, your work has been, for a number of years, already sort of working at that intersection. So I think it was very appropriate to have you discussing this topic. So thanks again for being on the podcast. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you.